This is the Education Gadfly Show. It's getting warmer. There you go. Maybe there's something to this global warming thing. Um, let's not go there, shall we not? What does Gadfly say? Hey, this is your host, Michael Chelly of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Aaron Einhorn. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Aaron is a national reporter for NBC News. Also joining us this week, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hey, David. Well, this is a special one, a special issue really for David, because those of you that have been tuning in know that we've been talking about all kinds of ideas for how schools can handle this horrific situation we find ourselves in, but including how they might be able to do in-person learning. David has been pushing this notion, what about learning outside now that we know that ventilation is the big issue and that people are much less likely to get infected if they're outside. And lo and behold, Aaron wrote a great article for NBCNews.com about that idea. David begged us to have her on the show, and here we are. So Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this idea. Happy to be here. All right. So let's talk about outdoor learning during a pandemic on Ed Reform Update. Aaron, well, you laid out this idea in your article, and you certainly talk about how some private schools, especially Waldorf schools, are considering this approach. You know, my kids went to a Waldorf preschool, and they started an outdoor school while we were there, and that would seem super fun and cool and groovy. Uh, But other people you talked to were pretty skeptical about this idea. I think one person you talked to even said it was a gimmick, because it's not very often that the weather cooperates to allow this to happen. After you reported on this article, what's your take? Is this something that many schools and school districts around the country could consider? I don't know that I would say many schools are considering it, but I did find a whole huge range of schools doing it. I did start with a private Waldorf school where they had three architects on the school committee and they had somebody in construction who helped them get equipment. And they actually came up with an idea. They're actually building wooden pavilions outside as a shelter for classrooms and They're trying to raise $50,000 to pay for it. Mm. They have all volunteer labor from parents, including a lot of professional parents who know how to build things. But I also found examples of public schools doing it. I talked to the superintendent of a small public school district on the coast of Maine who has bought CARES Act stimulus funding to buy tents and snowsuits for the little kids. Because the big question everybody asks, hey, maybe it works in the fall, but what about the winter? Or in the hot parts, what about the summer? The public schools in Portland, Maine, in the city there, they partnered with an architecture organization that sent landscape architects to each school in the district to kind of figure out, okay, where could outdoor classrooms be? Not every school has the space, particularly in big cities where they're all kind of jammed in together, but suburban schools, rural schools often have quite a bit of a sizable schoolyard or a parking lot or someplace where you could put a rain or sun shelter. Yeah. Is it your sense that this is mostly being done with older kids or younger kids? In my reporting, I found kind of a whole mix. As you were talking, right, almost every high school has a football field, and that's a pretty big space. So I get it. Not everywhere can do it. But my impression is that there are lots of football fields and soccer fields in this country. So I guess I'm skeptical of this notion that no possible way we could do this. I get that it's complex and we don't really know if it'll work, but surely space can't be the primary constraint here. 
Certainly, it seems like in suburban and rural areas, as Aaron said, you've got those big fields. And so if you really wanted to put up field tents on those fields, even spaced a little bit apart, those could be classrooms. And that would protect you from rain unless it's a really bad storm or from snow, but it could be cold in much of the country, but not all the country. David, you grew up in Oregon. You got nice weather. It's funny. Anecdotally, it sounds like many of the schools that are doing this are in Seattle or Portland, Maine, which is sort of the opposite of what I would have predicted. Am I wrong about that? I talked to, you know, Austin, Texas, and they're doing some work there. It's worth noting that outdoor education isn't this new thing that we're discovering because of a pandemic. We mentioned Waldorf. Waldorf's been encouraging learning in the natural environment for a century, right? The Rudolf Steiner model. So that's one example. But even public schools over the last 30 years, there's been a real movement to get kids outside more. We've all heard about these forest preschools or forest kindergartens where you have like the little kids out wandering in the woods. Even in upper grades, there's been a whole big push to convert concrete schoolyards into grassy areas to get kids out in nature more. In general, there's curriculums that are outdoor curriculums specifically designed to work outdoors because you need to teach a little bit differently outside than you would inside. And that movement's been happening for decades in this country. And this just kind of supercharged it because all of a sudden we have a crisis and every school is sitting here deciding between these two terrible options. Mm-hmm. Indoor, where people could get sick and die, and you've got virtual, which nobody thinks is an effective way of teaching the vast majority of kids. And for sure, I was an outdoor educator once upon a time, as listeners probably know, a camp counselor, in other words. Even if you want to do a traditional program, again, you put those tents up, open air tents to protect you from the elements, like we've seen with some of the field hospitals and things like that, you could have a pretty traditional classroom. Maybe you need the teacher to have a microphone so the kids can hear and so that you got to think about having a generator. And I imagine it's a hugely challenging logistical thing, but it's interesting how some of these schools, some of the private schools are like, well, who do we know in our parents? We've got architects, we've got builders, let's come together. You can do that in a lot of schools. There's social capital out there. Parents with time on their hands, desperate to have kids back in school. You can imagine that some of these problems you could address if we were committed to doing it. I'm also curious about something much short of doing school outside, which is simply, what about if we wanted to have some opportunity to check in with kids and families in person and be able to do some of that outside, right? We're so worried about kids being in homes where maybe they're not safe or just not getting a chance to meet their teachers this year. Like, why not have some kind of meetup in small groups or individually at parks where people can, you can stay six feet apart, you can wear masks, but you can be outside and it's almost zero risk, but you can lay eyes on each other. And I'd just be curious if that alone could add some value and it'd be very easy to pull off. One of the districts I mentioned in my reporting is the Seattle Public Schools. And I talked to a school board member there who a couple of other, I think they call them school board directors. They made a proposal to start the school year all virtually, but to also supplement that with a couple of hours a day where kids could come in and meet with their teacher. But then it's who's going to get them there if that's going to be the middle of the day and how do you do transportation? And there's a bunch of other logistical challenges that would go along with that. But her idea was, you know, have the kids gather for a nature walk or something or come for physical therapy or occupational therapy. Maybe the therapies could be outside in the tent or something. Look, homeschoolers forever have known this, that they they know it's important to find times for their kids to get together with other kids and other adults, and they make that happen. Now you point out the transportation issue. Buses do seem to be one big challenge. 
Too bad they're not like Jeeps. You could just take the doors and everything off and we could have these open air buses. David, how do you solve that problem? I don't know how you solve it, Mike, but I was looking this up on the Safe Rides to School website and they claim that even pre-COVID, it was something like 17% of kids in America were walking or biking to school. That's not 100%, but it's still hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids, right? And that was before you had such an strong incentive. That was with buses as an option. I don't know the actual number, but I have to believe that in many, many places, somewhere between a quarter and half of the kids could make it to school on foot. That doesn't mean it's politically acceptable, but I don't know. Look, plenty of parents would get them there. It was interesting where my kids go, Montgomery County, Maryland, before the decision to go all remote, when they were talking about having kids at school a couple of days a week, if that's what parents wanted, they talked about transportation. They said, we can only put 12 kids on a bus at a time. And so they were basically looking for parents to volunteer to get their kids to school on their own. And I am sure that in plenty of places, people would be happy to take that deal. So again, solvable problems. Well, Aaron, this is exactly the kind of creative thinking that we need. I wish we were seeing more of it, but it's super helpful to shine a light on places that are doing it. I think it might inspire some other people to do the same. So I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. Appreciate it. All right. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, after that chat about doing school outside, I kind of feel like we should be recording this outside. At least I have my windows open. Wow. That's right. We I'm just outside, Mike. No, no, not in Maine. It's not outside. You have no idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got a thunderstorm over here. So, mm-hmm. now look, it was muggy here last night. There's of course no air conditioning in Maine, so it was a little hard to sleep. But these are the problems you have in Maine, especially with global warming. So, uh, no air conditioning go in Maine. Them. Wow, that's a that's a big statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's a real issue. People, uh, last couple of years, the tourists are complaining that they're hot. <laughs> it's getting warmer. There you go. Maybe there's something to this global warming thing. Um, after all. Don't, mm-hmm. Let's not go there, shall we not? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Partly because of our schedule this week, we did not talk uh, uh, earlier on the podcast about Kamala Harris being the big pick as uh, Joe Biden's vice presidential selection. But uh, okay, we got the lineup. We'll have to return to that, I guess, later in the summer. You know, th- there's a little local story here. She did go to Howard University in D.C., so a little hometown pride. All right, we like that. For that. Okay. All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? Oh, uh, we have a new study. It's mostly descriptive. It looks at online course taking at the high school level. Uh, to determine if students are using online schools to take courses not available in their home schools. It seems like we've talked about this before, but we finally actually have a a study by Susanna Loeb, Brian Jacob, and Cassandra Hart that actually dig in to a panel of data from Florida Virtual School. That's the largest virtual sector in the nation and one of the most mature. It's been around a, a long time. And so they come up with sort of a typology of how to define some of these courses But they're looking at, quote, novel courses, which are those not available at the kids' home schools. And then they divide them into two other buckets called supplemental or displaced. And they're trying to get at why they might not be offered at a given high school. So supplemental means that students take courses to pursue specialized interest. 
beyond what their high school would cover. And they're supplemental when, number one, no other student in their high school takes the same course face-to-face in the same academic year. And number two, fewer than 15 kids from the same high school take it virtually. They actually tell us that in actuality, that should the cutoff is more like five or fewer. I mean, these are truly more specialized courses. And then their other definition is displaced. And it means that there's enough interest in the course to offer it at the high school level, but schools elect not to do that for whatever reason. And they're defined as, first part of the definition, no other kid in their high school takes the same course face-to-face in the same academic year. And then at least 15 kids were enrolled in the online version of the course in the same academic year. So, you know, you've got that sort of proxy for more interest in those displaced courses. All right, they have data from 2005 through 2014, but mostly they're reporting on 2013-14, which is their most recent year. So it's, it's a little dated. We're just looking at kids in high school, 9 through 12, and then they have a bunch of school demographic level data from NCS that they also use. All right, top just descriptive finding, number one, 20% of high school students took at least one virtual course during 2013-14. Many were duplicate, meaning they were also offered in person at their home high school, but a small but growing share of students enroll in novel courses each year, just like I said, that just gave you that definition. We got roughly 7% of Florida high school kids took such a course in 2013-14. Within that category of novel enrollments, the share of students taking what appear to be specialized courses, or what they call supplemental courses, and the share taking courses where a decent percentage of their peers were also taking a course, so meaning there's interest in those courses, both of those grew at similar rates, about 4% growth over their panel. And then they dug in and said, okay, what do some of these courses look like? And these novel courses include a mix of both standard stuff like PE, health, and driver's ed. But then you've got this whole set of specialized courses like Chinese, Latin, and forensic science. And then you've got another mix of advanced coursework, art history, AP computer science. And then you've got another bucket of remediation, courses for remediation and credit recovery. So It really is, at least in Florida virtual school, in the Florida setting, a pretty good mix of different types of courses and presumably for different purposes. In 2013-14, a majority of these novel courses, about 15 of the 20 of the most popular courses are supplemental. Again, meaning few of their peers in their homeschool are taking it, so they're more specialized. But four or five of the most popular courses are displaced meaning that there's enough interest where the school could feasibly offer that course, but for whatever reason, they're choosing not to. So we can talk about that. And then on the, uh, just again, when they just looked at different demographics, they found females are more likely to take any type of virtual course compared to males. Kids on free and reduced lunch are less likely to take them overall than our economically advantaged kids. Asian students particularly likely to take novel courses as are students in the higher grades, grade 11 and 12, and higher achieving students. So higher performing kids tend to take the specialized courses, but there's less differentiation in those in-demand courses where schools could presumably offer those courses. And then finally, students in rural schools are more likely to take novel courses and schools that offer fewer AP and IB courses, which makes sense. So I think one of the things, I mean, again, it's just chock full of descriptive data on, on course taking. But one thing it just kept raising for me was, you know, are high schools strategically using Florida virtual school to not offer particular courses? And, you know, how does this play into COVID and all that we're about to see roll out this year? Yeah, I mean, all those findings sound like they would fit with what you might expect, right? A lot of 
participation at the rural level, maybe more high achieving kids, which look, I think from what we know in online learning is that those kids in general tend to be more successful in these courses than other kids, um, though just in general. I'm always struck by the Florida story, you know, 20% of kids taking courses way back in 2013-14. Surely it mm -hmm. is bigger now or in the pre-pandemic now. Yeah. Uh, and yet we, it's not like we've seen all the other states after all these years say, you know what, Florida's been doing a great job. We should build one of those online schools too. I mean, my sense is it's still fairly rare that, that there may be a handful of other states that have something like it, but it much smaller and maybe not as well run. I just don't know why this one hasn't traveled. It just makes so much sense that it is hard to offer courses. And even if you've got, as you said, Amber, you know, why might you have, a, you have enough demand from the student level to offer a course in person, but you may not have a teacher who's qualified to teach it, especially if you're in a remote area, you know, and so it's a, it's a good solution. I, I don't know. I don't get it why we don't see every state in the country doing the same thing. Yeah, I don't get it either, Mike. Certainly on the high end, right? I mean, I think one of the things that was reinforced there that I think we all kind of know is that there really isn't one online story, right? There are two or three. There's the rural story, which is about access. There's the high achievers story, which is about access. There's the credit recovery story. I am all about, you know, helping kids who, you know, are looking to challenge themselves and cannot be challenged in their local high school for one reason or another access that challenge. I am not all about letting kids who found the challenges of their high school a little bit too much or inconvenient uh, find sort of an easy way out of that online. Uh, so, you know, in other words, I think it's a great way to help kids access more challenge challenges and it's a terrible way of letting them escape challenges yeah i mean maybe maybe there's just sufficiently mixed feelings about online education that it hasn't done that or maybe government bureaucracies are just not good at it which is, is would not be a new thing right i certainly think even in the pre-covid now as you call it there's a strong case for doing i guess we'll call it high-end cadillac online learning for kids who are looking for more challenges yeah and that was the point I was going to make is that we talk so much about which types of kids can succeed in online learning, but what about which type of teachers can really excel in teaching uh, in the online format? And we've heard of, you know, this whole push about, you know, making, putting more kids in front of your highly effective teachers in the brick and mortar schools. And so, and I know Florida Virtual Schools was trying to do this years back, just trying to identify which of their teachers uh, were more effective in this, in this platform. And so, that becomes increasingly important now. Well, yeah. and what is kind of crazy, right, about the current situation is <laughs> that in the age of the internet, where uh, you can access anything from anywhere, we have, you know, multiple districts, every district within a single state, right? You have different districts all doing their own thing, right? Rather than just having one high quality state, you know, online school. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's crazy, right? It's crazy that adjacent districts, uh, I assume this is happening in many places, are potentially adopting, who knows, either competing or very similar platforms. And we're reinventing the wheel like 10,000 times. Right. Uh, instead of building, 
you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or at most 50 big, you know, really good wheels, and then sort of figuring out sort of who they make sense for. This is the darkest possible time. But I mean, what we're not talking about is the funding model, right? Like, you know, I mean, how much is a disadvantage the the homeschool to then see their see the kids taking the, the, the Florida virtual school? And I know there's Florida virtual schools have these various funding models over the years where they don't get the money unless the kid actually passes the course, which created some not so great incentives. So that's another sort of squeaky wheel that we haven't even touched on is just the, the finance part of this. Well, let's not, you know, be naive here. I mean, I, I guess I should answer my own question. The reason that this model hasn't traveled is that yeah. in a lot of states, some of the online learning companies, including one I used to work for way back when, have been lobbying to keep this model from, from taking hold because they, they want to be able to contract. They, they want to be able to set up their own online schools, mm-hmm. often charter schools, and or they want to be able to contract with individual districts to provide these services. They don't want the state to have a monopoly you know mm-hmm. it's like the question about do you have an electric company that has a monopoly or do you have some kind of market-based system for providing electricity so they, they want there to be a competitive market so that they can play and they can you know be a part of that but then especially right now in this moment what you have is you've got school districts thirteen thousand of them all trying to build their own online schools, either by themselves or by hiring some of these companies. And you know, the folks in Florida have a huge advantage because they don't necessarily have to do that, at least not you know, for all these courses that are already set up. There's a system, they can scale, they can find ways to get teachers to you know, add more teachers to their roles. Uh, I just think a lot of other states must be saying to themselves, boy, I wish we had figured out a way to follow the Florida model. Mm-hmm. Right. A public option, as it were, Mike. A public option. <laughs> oh, no, good one, David. Good one. Okay. I forget, was Kamala in favor of that or not? I, I, I have no idea. Uh, I think it changed uh, on a daily basis. All right. Hey, that's all the time we do have for this week. It was always a pleasure, guys. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.